Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. Every week I explore a new artwork and try and decode the messages hidden within it. This week I am particularly excited for two reasons. Number one, the image that we're doing is finally going to tackle the arts and crafts movement and the pre-Raphaelites, something that I have been wanting to do on Arts Detective for ages. Second reason I'm excited is because of my guest. My guest is Dr. Emma Wells, and bizarrely, I taught you at university. <laughs> <laughs> and you are now a hugely successful writer, a lecturer. Um, you are also going into broadcasting. I'm incredibly proud of all you've achieved. Um, your book is fantastic, and I enjoyed reading it so much because we actually have an awful lot of shared taste for, for what we tackle. What's your title of your book? Um, it's Pilgrim Roots of the British Isles. Yeah, Pilgrim yes. Roots. And this idea that we examine sanctity, sainthood and medieval period mm-hmm. makes us kindred spirits. It does indeed. <laughs> and the fact we've known each other a long time. A very long time. <laughs> Too long. But I care to admit. I know, I know, I know. It takes me back. Good God. Well, I think we were talking about maybe 15 years or 10 years or something. But that's dating us. That's uh, ageing uh, us both. Yes. <laughs> so we will stop there. But when I asked you to come and be a guest on Art Detective, I had a feeling maybe you might pick something medieval mm-hmm. as, as your artwork. Maybe, you know, you and I are both interested in St. Cuthbert. Maybe we're going to do Linda Swan Gospels, something like that. But that will have to wait for another day because you came back to me very quickly with this image that we're looking at today. William Morris's La Belle Isolte, painted 1858, oil on canvas, but it's quite a large image. It's 71, 72 centimetres by 50 centimetres uh, in the Tate. Why did you choose this? <laughs> Bit of a dark horse, I suppose. Um, well, the reason I chose it, actually, was because it merges our interests in medievalism as well as William Morris, the founder of the Society of Protection of Ancient Buildings, the Arts and Crafts Movement. Everything is in there. And Tristan and Azolt, Guinevere is there. So everything, this whole mesh of things is there. So there is a very interesting medieval connection, as we will see. But it's not a typical medieval artefact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's my feeling as well. This is why I'm so drawn to this period in art. I love it. I I could look at pre-Raphaelite paintings all day. And yet, our passions lie a thousand years earlier. But 
What we have with Morris, I suppose, and with the pre-Raphaelites, you know, with whom he was friends, Rossetti, uh, Burne Jones, they are studying a form of medievalism. We have mm-hmm. to call it that because it, it is yeah. a bastardized version of the medieval. Tricky. But they are fascinated by it, aren't they? Now, what is it that's drawing Morris to medieval subject matter? Well, Morris attended Marlborough College. Um, Arguably, his his schooling was quite minimal initially, but he came under the influence of the High Church Oxford movement. And essentially, the movement developed into what we now know as Anglo-Catholicism, but specifically, it was the Catholic revival of the Church of England. And from that, I think it seemed to sort of integrate into his arts and crafts later on in life, particularly his early paintings. It really filtered down into that. He entered Exeter College in 1853 at Oxford, where he then met Edward Byrne Jones, who would become one of the greatest pre-Raphaelite artists. And from then, they created this sort of aesthetic circle and put this all together. And therefore, that's how it sort of melded as one, as it were. They're such a fascinating pair, aren't they, Morris and Byrne Jones? I was reading up on Morris. <laughs> at one point, the two of them go around Europe looking at medieval churches mm-hmm. because they think they want to form a, a religious community. They want to be monks. But then they become a little bit disenchanted with that idea yeah. and actually invest their energies into art. But in a way that is is <laughs> deeply rooted in religious imagery and religious ideas, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and he even trained as an architect first, which is also interesting. Mm. So you can see that both of the art and architecture coming through as well as the um, ecclesiastical side of it yeah you can see the fascination with the medieval and also the this religious context Mm -hmm. here in if we look at the painting which i absolutely Mm -hmm. adore it this is the only major large-scale painting that morris completed and it did drive him slightly balmy didn't it he went back to this over a long period of time he wasn't a natural painter but the surrounding subject matter the, the the textiles the patterns even the little missile that's open in front there's something bigger going on in this image, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. What I find most interesting, um, what I would like to call it is sort of aesthetic gossip, as it were. (laughs) That's what I call it, really. What's so interesting about this painting is that the model is Morris's wife, Jane Burden. It's painted in 1858, and for a long time it was taken to be Queen Guinevere. Yeah. Although um, you can see why, I suppose. It's, It's typical of her pose. The lady's queenly demeanour, she's got sombre features, an Arthurian garb. Um, it's considered in the context of Morris's poem as well, The Defence of Guinevere, which was written about this time. So I think most people thought very similar. So the conclusion was that it was Guinevere. However, we now think that it's Isolt mm. from Tristan and Isolt. So what we can see going on is it's um, the melancholy queen right there. She appears to have risen from her bed. Um, in quite sombre state. A, we have a small greyhound, you can see, curled up amongst the crumpled sheets. They look so sweet. Which, again, argues strongly here that um, it's Isolt. And no dog is ever mentioned in Queen Guinevere's anything to do with Queen Guinevere. Whereas in relation to Isolt, it's said that her bitch dog never leaves her side. I, I was just about and to say, uh, yes. <laughs> it's the, the dog queen, that Tristan gives her, isn't it? The Queen had always a little brutchet hound. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we know that about her. And then we have also the rich colours, the emphasis on pattern and detail, such as the illuminated missile, as you say, which mm. it was open which sort of depicts Morris's true talents. I think they're really shown within this particular um, painting. Mm. And interestingly enough as well, you see the background panels. Mm. 
very characteristic of Morris's later wallpaper that we know so well, and also the heavy tapestries that he designed for 17 red line squares, while the rooms he shared with Burne Jones. Mm. So there's so much going on here. There's so much metaphor and symbolism. <laughs> it's just heavily laden. There's so much to unpack in pre-Raphaelite paintings. I think that this is something that they're taking from the medieval tradition, isn't it? The idea that art isn't always just about something beautiful, but that it's carrying narratives and stories and symbolism. Yes. I mean, I'm sure this is something that we have in common as medievalists, that unpacking symbols is the best thing about yes. art. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's the most fun. Absolutely. And I suppose it keeps going because, as I've said, it's Jane Burden. It's his wife, which is even more interesting because we know that Rossetti had an affair with Jane. Mm -hmm. Because both she and Elizabeth Siddle, um, Rossetti's wife, later wife, and one of the models, they were both models for the pre-Raphaelites. And it is said that throughout Morris and Jane's marriage, this was going on. Mm -hmm. And then we see Isolde stood here, standing wistfully in her chamber, her feelings for Tristan reinforced by the sprigs of rosemary. Exactly. Symbolising remembrance in her crown, the word dollars, or grief. Grief, yeah. Written down the side of the mirror, she gazes mournfully. So clearly she's lost in grieving memory. So it's, is this Jane stood there, you know, wanting who? We don't know. Yeah, wanting, <laughs> who does she want? Does she want Morris or does she want Rossetti? Wow. This, is, this is a very odd image for him to be making of his wife, isn't it? I mean, the rosemary I find really interesting because rosemary is, um, is a symbol of remembrance, but death as well, because in terms of where this comes in the story, a Tristan and his all. This is yeah. where she's grieving his death. So right the way through, there's an undertone of, of death and, yep. and remembrance. Yes, he's said to have scribbled on the back of one of the, I think it was one of the earliest sketches rather than the actual painting. Um, I cannot paint you, but I love you. It was, it was on one of the preliminary sketches. Mm, I cannot paint you, but I love you. Oh, Which that's... Is Tragic. Tragic. Odd. How do you interpret that? There's a romance to the pre-Raphaelites. Yeah. Some people find it very twee. I have students now when I teach art history who groan when we go into the pre-Raphaelite module because they see it as overly romantic, overly um, emotive mm -hmm. and not really doing what art should be doing. But we have to think about it as part of a bigger change mm -hmm. in society, don't we? And, and one of the changes you've already picked up on is this idea of Morris being involved in the new Anglo-Catholic church. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal because you've got Catholicism made illegal, essentially, for centuries. And it's this new opening up back to a sort of high religion mm. that in some ways triggers all this art and, and this new movement. I, I think um, by aligning Jane with um, sort of these medieval heroines, as it were, whether it's Guinevere or whether it's um, Isolde, we you know, who knows, really? Morris sort of poses a radical contention between the um, heroines of romance and the high Victorian medievalism, mm. and the high Victorian church, as it were. You know, he's posing them one between the other, pitching the sort of aesthetic values of love and beauty against the hypocrisy of Victorian conceptions of sin, and then what we see going on in the church of that time, which therefore then leads to the change that he enforces. He gets incredibly involved in social change, doesn't he? Yeah. What sort of things is he doing? Well, he was driven by the two Byron rages in his life, as it were, were um, 
the, the ugliness and injustice of capitalist society, particularly at this time, as we know. With the Industrial Revolution Absolutely. and the implications of that. Yeah. Absolutely. So he was opposed to um, the industrial society, the modern world. After he read and embraced the writings of Karl Marx and um, the Marxist era of the 1880s, I think also what happened with the Great Exhibition in 1851, um, sort of these ideas were spread spreading across the country. So he sort of thought that he knew that quality came at a price, although he was sort of in a quandary because although he wanted um, quality within everybody's houses, no matter whether it was the rich or the poor, quality came at a price. Yeah. So this is where I find um, the wallpapers he produced in later life, etc., and the tapestries, the hangings. They were extremely expensive. I mean, extremely expensive. I know that um, at the lower end of the scale, for example, Lady Lanerton, owner of Castle Howard, paid pound eighteen shillings sixpence for seven pieces of wallpaper in 1878, mm. which equated to over three weeks' wages for an unskilled labourer. Exactly. So it's not that everyone can have this this art for for everyone, which he really wanted. I think. Well, he, yeah, because I mean, he's part of this this arts and crafts movement, which which is arguing against mass production yeah. and for returning to handmade objects. But as you say, you know, factory produced objects can be churned out at a lower cost, Cheaper, yeah. but if you're making everything by hand. But I think it, really what it comes down to, I think it's with him, with Ruskin, with all these people that are encouraging a return to the medieval. They want beauty back in the world, don't they? Absolutely. He mourned the kind of the death of traditional crafts. He longed to restore what he imagined, um, the sort of the communal values of the Middle Ages and everything that was going on at that time. Um, and that just wasn't happening, I suppose, in this uh, the Great Exhibition era. Mm. And he wanted that back, but that was going to come at a cost. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And when he brings about these social changes, particularly in housing, mm. uh, this is something that... My students always giggle about as well, but when Prince Charles says that, yeah. you know, it's the little country cottages of England mm -hmm. that everybody should be living in, 
that is almost going back to Morris, isn't it? Not, yeah. you know, ugh, this is all exceptionally topical, but it shouldn't be high-rise flats. It shouldn't be brutalist architecture. It should be something that has a, a quality and a beauty to it inherently. Mm. And that that should be the sort of social housing that people get. So he kind of does it himself, doesn't he, with the Red House. So when he builds his Red mm. House for him and Jane, that is setting a blueprint for the middle class house, let's be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But again, not everyone can afford that. And yeah. even today, the, the small chocolate box cottages are extremely expensive. Absolutely. So unfortunately, although he had the right sentiment, it wasn't going in the right way until much later, until you get into the, you know, the sort of 1940s, really, mm. a while after his death, mm. when mass production could really sort of take a hold of this and give out a decent enough quality, as it were, mm. which was against what he wanted, I suppose. But um, I mean, he's a fascinating character, being involved in architecture, poetry, and painting. I mean, looking at his painting, he paints well. He doesn't paint the best. Yeah. Um, you could say, you know, in the face of the female figure, it's not the most delicately handled female face that you get in the pre-Raphaelites. I wonder again if that's because of the subject matter. <laughs> it's very raw. It's real. She's upset. She's melancholic. You know, she's she's not idealised in many ways in her face. Actually, she's, not she's quite harsh looking. She's she, affected yeah. by emotions, isn't she? Absolutely. But I think that's the point. If it is supposed to be Jane, mm. really, then her hardships are worn on her her face, as it were. Yeah, and we've got um, these oranges. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say any more about those? I mean, we've got all the accoutrements of a lady here, haven't we? Because we've got her hairbrush, we've got her jewellery. And then, of course, there's this handwritten book of hours, which I, I again yeah. find fascinating. The Morris, another area, of course, that he and his contemporaries yeah. were moving into is the printing press mm -hmm. and making printed books that look as beautiful as handwritten manuscripts. But then, then you've got the, the oranges, yeah. There are lots, actually, of subtle references to um, sex and sexuality, yeah, I suppose. Exactly. Um, yes, so we have angular arms and wrists, um, which you don't notice at first, but when you see them, they're quite prominent. Oh dear, um, yeah, now I can only see them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but they do, they express a torturous reluctance to assume her girdle's weight. Oh, okay. So she's putting the girdle on because we haven't even mentioned haven't the girdle. Mentioned, sorry, she's trying to bind her, her she's girdle around her. She's trying to draw it around her. her. You see, it's heavy on her hands. And her hands are sort of raw and ready as, as her face is, yeah. you know, as drawn as, as her face is. And the girdle often signifies um, sort of lost medieval world of spiritual, cultural riches um, and embodies the redemptive powers of love. Mm. So that's what we're seeing And chastity here. as well. I mean, there is a sense of chastity coming through with the, with the girdle, yeah. Yes, um, it's a symbol of classical mythology, but um, it's linking her with Venus as well. Mm. So, and also Aphrodite, the goddess of spring. So again, lots of symbolism here. There are other interesting points. Morris captures um, a moment as she assumes this potent symbolism of sexual power which is charged with significance paradoxically. However, the body is twisted. And I always find this particularly interesting because her body is twisted. And when I first looked at it, I thought, was it just an odd way of painting? Has he not got the perspective right? Yeah. But her body is particularly twisted. Her brows are drawn and the dark lines beneath her eyes suggest an inner conflict and despair, mm. capturing the observing eye. And I think that's... And it is, again, by putting the figure in the twisted posture, there's an angst to it. But there's also virtuosity because Morris is showing that he can 
uh, he's he's contorting the figure mm. and making it's beautiful, but it's pained. It's almost what you see in art history at this stage with the sublime and the beautiful. Yeah. This isn't just chocolate box beautiful. Yeah. There is something painful and sublime about it. It is not just a beautiful painting put yeah. in front of you. There is pain beneath the surface. Mm. And then we also have her rippling mass of hair, which is it's very dark but you can see it here. He's but done he, the hair well, actually, hasn't is, he? Yeah. Yes, and she has a garland of rosemary. And then also you mentioned the oranges, mm. which are actually pomegranates. Oh, <laughs> are they? Got this reproduction. They are in. pomegranates. They are definitely supposed yeah. to be pomegranates. Yes, they're an odd colour. Yeah. But as we know, they're often used as a decorative device, but also associated with the Virgin yeah. um, and Christ um, in Christian iconography. Pomegranates makes much more sense, actually, because oranges are more about sexuality, whereas pomegranates are much more about female virtue and about... And suffering. And, and suffering and redemption. Yeah. So with Persephone and the, and the pomegranate pips, six months in hell, six months above ground, Absolutely. there's all those classical connections with pomegranate, aren't there? Yes. That makes sense. Fertility, rebirth, mm. as well as that, too. And in uh, fact, the pomegranates run down into the decoration. Yes, I was just about to say. Yeah. So the windowless context... Um, really draws attention to these actually in both her floral crown and embroidered on her bedside tablecloth woven into the tapestry behind her all are suggestive of the myth of persephone yeah um who was tricked obviously as you say by hades into eating the pomegranate scenes that would bind her to spend six months of every year in the darkness of the underworld yeah. only to be awakened in the spring so it's such an allegorical meaning here yeah Absolutely. because you know, this idea of Oh, God, frustration and unfaithfulness, and I think, as well. And breaking your oath, because, yeah. you know, that was the point with Persephone, wasn't it? She broke her oath. She was told not to eat anything. Yeah. And it was eating those six pips that, that did it. Absolutely. Um, and then this is interesting as well with Morris, because he studied classics originally, didn't he? And so he's coming through classics, but he is drawing on a set of myths, but collating them, because the myth of Tristan and Isolde was very popular. Chaucer writes his own, I know, I'm thinking of Chaucer and Crusade now, but um, there are there are various versions in, in medieval romance and going right the way up to the Victorian Mallory, period. And, yeah. Mallory yeah. and Lamour de Arthur is also influencing yeah. him, yeah. isn't it? Mm. So he's melding myths and he's melding symbolism. And in a way, I suppose that's where I struggle with the medievalism, because it's almost like a pick and mix version of yes. medieval, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's choosing the bits you, that fit. Yeah. It is, yes, but it doesn't quite work. There's a lack of authenticity to it at times, Absolutely. isn't there? Well, yes, because a lot, as you say, a lot of it is actually has more classical roots than mm. any medieval roots. It's just using a more... Well, is it using a medieval... No, it's not, so... <laughs> and, it, and it's also, I mean, just the whole... The whole setup with the environment. I mean, they are basing a lot of their ideas on things like manuscript illuminations, on surviving evidence. But yeah. but there's also a sense in which they're selling their own wares, aren't they? Absolutely. <laughs> this is like a catalogue for Morris products. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think the only sort of tie that I can remember that links it to medievalism is there was an unfinished hanging with them in Kelmscott Manor. Yeah. So, which is depicting uh, Chaucer's uh, legend of good women. Yes. So that's perhaps where this medieval connection comes from, derives from, more so than, and it's sort of the, the Chaucer's martyrs of love. Mm. So I think perhaps that is 
the link more so than actually what's going on in the painting. And Camscott and, and the connection with Chaucer as well. I mean, they deliberately, the arts and crafts movement idolise Chaucer, don't they? I mean, mm. he's sort of a hero, uh, has his name carved into furniture and, you know, he, he's constantly influencing things. But I think for us as medievalists today, the pre-Raphaelite movement, the arts and crafts movement, there is an idealism, there is a, a romance behind it that is beautiful and it's attractive, but it does leave you wanting a bit, doesn't it? Or does it? I mean, does it leave you wanting, Emma? <laughs> it does and it doesn't. I suppose it's perhaps using this sort of medieval story mm. and then taking inspiration from classical elements and using the arts and crafts. Yes, I suppose it is very wanting. Maybe we look at the original raw evidence, don't we? We go back to texts, we go back to archaeology. There's nothing authentic that, no. about this. It's a Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> a Disney princess. But, yeah. but, you know, in a way, to me, it has almost nothing to do with medieval. It is about the Victorians. And it is about this period of anxiety as the Industrial Revolution is coming, as society is shifting mm -hmm. so radically... That anxiety is this sort of wistful looking to an imagined past. Yes. Well, I think he's right in this era just before he's about to found the Society of Protection of the Ancient Buildings, whisk away that whole, uh, the restoration of the um, high Victorian churches and go back to um, the sort of skillful repair of back to the medievalism as he wanted it. Seeing the value in the old. That's true, actually, that in the face of such radical new change, he and his contemporaries are asking for is a bit of empathy for the old. We've got to agree that that's not a bad thing. No, because <laughs> there were all these zealous restorations going on and all he was looking for was a bit of medievalism, you know, well, he's created medievalism. His version perhaps. of medievalism, um, yeah. But absolutely, he's just looking for a physical manifestation of the past, however he's going to get it. His legacy is huge and it impacts in so many different areas. As we said, you know, social housing and um, print work and the mass production mm. of beautiful interior design and then a painting. I mean, yeah. he is... He's a Renaissance man in that respect, that he's, he's, he's a polymath, he can do lots and lots of things. And I'm so glad that you brought this along to talk about. This is a painting I've really, really wanted to grapple with and you've brought so much to the table and it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much um, for having me. You're on Twitter, aren't you? I am, of course. What's your handle? Emma underscore J underscore Wells. <laughs> I'm on Twitter too. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, there are loads more backed up and there are loads to come. Why not subscribe? You can go to historyhit.com slash artdetective and keep up with all the news. I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.